Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. My guest is Joanna Felzer, who is the artistic director of Berkeley Rep. Joanna Felzer's first season as artistic director began in 2019. Right now, Berkeley Rep is airing a piece called The Waves in Quarantine. It's a theatrical experiment in six movements by Lisa Peterson. Before we talk about The Waves in Quarantine, I want to ask you about the past year during COVID. So Joanna Felser, at what point did you realize that something would change? What was going on at Berkeley Rep? Did you have a show playing? And when did you decide to shut down? Yeah, we had two shows playing, one in each theater. We had School Girls or the African Mean Girls play that actually was just in its last bit of technical rehearsal. So we hadn't even begun performances there. And we had Culture Clash, performing across the courtyard in the Pete's Theater, and they were in their third or so week of performance. And it was a really interesting time because, gosh, it's so hard to remember in some ways what the specifics of it were. But, you know, I think for all of us, it had been some period of time that we had begun to be hearing about COVID and how contagious it was seeming. And, you know, we were hearing things coming obviously, from what uh, the experiences were internationally. So we'd been engaged in several weeks of meetings that were about risk mitigation and, you know, all the hand washing procedures and the wiping of the surfaces. But it really all came to a head in, in the middle of March last year. And we had to make, you know, the really challenging decision to suspend performances of Culture Clash and then with schoolgirls not to open the show. And at that point, once you shut down, How long did it take before you realized, wait a second, this isn't opening for a while. We have to do something. (laughs) You're sort of asking, in some ways, what's the most challenging question that any of us have faced over the last 15 months or so, which is, how long is this going to last and how do we begin to plan for it? And I remember there was a moment when we first shut down where we thought, oh, this is a couple of weeks. And then it became clear that it was a couple of months. And then, you know, we've sort of been in this rolling plan making and unmaking of those plans over the last 12 months. I think we now have a plan that will stick. But, you know, I've never made and unmade so many plans in my entire professional life. I know that some theater companies immediately began thinking of online plays, audio plays. At what point did you make that decision? And do you remember what the first one was? Yeah, I mean, the two imperatives that we were really wrestling with were how do we continue to put money in the pocket of artists? Because obviously, we were watching our entire industry really decimated financially. And then the other was how do we remain in relationship to our audience? And I think it took us a little while to try and figure out 
what people wanted or needed from us. And I'd say that also has changed over the last 12 months. So the very first thing we did was we um, joined a coalition of theaters nationally that were doing something called uh, Play at Home. And this was about commissioning playwrights to create very, very short form pieces that could be performed by whatever uh, resources you had sort of within your grasp in your own home. So could you do this with your family? Could you make something with your pet or your houseplant or by yourself. Uh, so we had the opportunity to commission three local artists and that was sort of the very first wave of addressing how were we gonna meet these two needs. And then we started to think a bit more broadly time goes by, your own ambitions begin to reawaken. And we cooked up this idea for the project that became Place Settings Berkeley. And that really came about because I think as we all became so focused on our screens, and I think people have done some really fantastic storytelling via Zoom, but I was really interested in what are the formats by which we can actually give an audience that great gift that live theater does, which is the, the transport to another world, the, the entrance into the imagination of an artist that takes you really outside your own experience. And given that we can't all be in a venue together where we have the resources of a playwright and a director and extraordinary actors and the designers who really help to create those worlds for us that are not our own. We started thinking a lot about audio and the ways in which when you only have in some ways one sense available to you, it, it puts you in the position of world building inside your own head. And we were thinking a lot about what our relationship to place is. You know, as you remember, in the early months of the pandemic, we were all largely housebound. And if anything, you know, we were leaving to go on sort of solo walks around our neighborhoods. And we started thinking about the ways in which the city, in some ways, our, our shared community, the town of Berkeley, started to represent for us a set of shared experiences. We were talking about these iconic locations, or frankly, not iconic locations, but just regular old places that for each one of us, as my artistic team was meeting and brainstorming together, took on huge significance. So for Madeline Oldham, who's our our resident dramaturg, it was a particular set of stairs in a particular entrance to the Times Square subway station where she had had, you know, a big romantic moment years and years past. And to her, it was this question of, as each person now who walks through that space in the course of a day, are they aware of what it has meant to me? I was spending a lot of time walking around Berkeley with my dad in the early stages of the pandemic, and we started walking by every house we had lived in when I was a child. And, you know, as you look through the window and you look at a family and you think, do they feel in any way the experiences that I had in that space? So the ways in which space as a shared form of scenery can contain all of these stories, the ghosts of the experiences past. So what we did is we went to 10 artists who each had a really close relationship to the city of Berkeley, many who were still living here now, some who had grown up here, some who had had really transformative life experiences here. And we asked them each to choose a specific location within the city of Berkeley 
and to create a story around that. And for some people, it was a real personal first person narrative. For others, the location became a jumping off place for something that was entirely imagined. And our fantasy was that audience members would actually walk to each place. And as they arrived there, they could, you know, put on a set of headphones and and be immersed in the story as told by these 10 artists. So we commissioned a wonderful cartoonist, Tom Toro, who does a lot of work for The New Yorker. He actually used to work in Berkeley Rep's box office. And we asked him to draw a map that we could send to people so that you really had this sense of invitation back out into the world. So it's a map that represents where these 10 stories take place that people received in the mail. And I think that piece of it, for me at least, was about as more and more of our lives were becoming digitally mediated, you know, it felt like all of our experiences were happening through our computers. The idea of something very tangible that you could hold in your hand felt important. So Tom created this beautiful map. These 10 writers wrote us really varied and exquisite stories and we recorded them and you know they're out in the world now as podcasts and we had such a good time doing the Berkeley ones that in fact now we're about to start commissioning another group of 10 writers to create Place Settings Oakland. What has been the response to it? Do you get people saying we did the maps, we did the whole thing? And what about somebody living in another city. How do you think they would respond to this? Well, you know, part of what's been so interesting over this last year is that we are no longer bound by geography. So we've found both with play settings and with this weekly play reading group that we're doing called What's in a Play, we're having people participate from all over the country and frankly, in some cases, internationally. So there are ways in which I think we've seen people who had long relationships to Berkeley Rep, either they were subscribers and they've since moved away or people who grew up here and now are living in other places, but for whom Berkeley and Berkeley Rep were touchstones for them, have the opportunity to be participating in this programming in a way that they never could if we were only in person. So that, that's been one of the silver linings of it all. There have been very few silver linings, so it's important to point out the ones that do exist. Joanna Felser, I was looking at the different things Berkeley Rep had done, and, and I've noticed each company I've spoken with has done it a little differently. But what you started with seems to have been from the old Vic Romantics Anonymous, and that was the very first? Or was there something before? Oh, gosh. Time. Time is so funny now. What we wanted to be doing while we were generating work of our own, like play settings, like It Can't Happen Here, the radio play that was the adaptation of the stage play that we had done, like The Waves in Quarantine, we also wanted to be sharing work with our audience that was being generated by artists that they had relationships to. So as you mentioned, Romantics Anonymous, which was done by the beloved Emma Rice and her company Wise Children, that they were broadcasting live from a theater in England, uh, that was something that we really wanted to share. Our audience has been watching Emma's work over the better part of a decade now. And so to be able to give them access to this latest piece of hers was just a total delight. We've done two pieces with Hershey Felder, again, who our audience has a wonderful and longstanding relationship with. So as we were generating work of our own, we were also creating opportunities for those artists to share their work more broadly and for our audiences to continue those relationships that have been meaningful to them. 
And you also did for a month, The Steadfast Tin Soldiers. That's, That's right. Uh, yeah. Mary Zimmerman, who again, our audience just loves. So the chance to share that piece with them was really a pleasure. Going back to sort of the beginning. So it starts, you begin to have questions. You set up place settings, Berkeley. You set up It Can Happen Here. And then suddenly comes George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. How did Berkeley Rep deal with that change in the zeitgeist? Well, I think like many organizations, both internally and externally, I think it's been a real awakening for us as an organization to look at the ways in which structurally we have unwittingly, I think, participated in in racism within our field. I think Many of us went into this with the best of intentions, but we're called upon in this moment to really challenge our assumptions about the hierarchies that exist. And the, more importantly, I think the ways in which certain populations have been excluded. Theater is an art form that has for a long time been a place of great privilege. I think it's seen as perhaps being unavailable to many people. And this is a moment that we want to be making sure that both for the good of the organization, as well as the good of our audience and the broader community in which we sit, that we are being as expansive as possible. And so that relates to the artists with whom we engage. It relates to the staff who are charged with facilitating that work, and it involves our audience. Did that require any changes in specifically in the makeup of the board, in the makeup of your particular staff? You know, some of these things are going to be short answers and some of them are going to be long. I think some of them are things that can happen quite rapidly and others are going to be a real journey for us as an organization. I will say our board very quickly began a pretty rigorous internal education process. So they've been dedicating 50% of every board meeting that they've been having over the last year to their own internal anti-racism training. Our staff has been engaged in a process of facilitated training, as well as our own work, both individually and in shared affinity spaces. We've all, I think, in different ways, engaged with other working groups in the field to propel ourselves and to engage in this work of accountability and a real development of the muscle that is going to be required to make change. At what point did you begin putting together the 21 season? And at a certain point, you had to postpone the first show, Swept Away. Yeah, I mean, Swept Away was originally imagined as the last show of our 1920 season. So that was one of the first that we realized quite quickly we were going to have to postpone. And in fact, it was the one where I remember being on the phone with Michael Mayer, who's the director. And when you think about, in some ways, how naive we were in those early stages of the pandemic, and he and I were having this conversation of like, well, wait, maybe if we just hold the rehearsals in New York and don't make the cast and the creative team travel for another month, maybe then we'll be past all of this, which looking back seems, um, you know, it's indicative of the time in which we were. So you know, so I'm really proud that Swept Away has managed to keep its cast together, its whole creative team together, and that will be part of our 21-22 season coming up. Originally, it was going to start at the end of May, but then suddenly it got moved to next year. That's right, with probably a couple of other moves in between that we can barely even remember. 
you know, there was a time that we thought we would be back in performance by the fall of 2020. Still now, we don't know how long this thing is going to last. It's still up in the air, even though we're getting better and more people are being vaccinated. I think you're right. There's a lot that we don't know. And there are a lot of things that are beyond the control of most of us. That being said, we feel really confident about this community's appetite to be vaccinated, which I think is going to be one of the key things that can happen to make it possible for us all to be back in not just theaters together, but in schools, in places of worship, in supermarkets. So I think what we're seeing at least in the responses that we're hearing from our audience, um, because we're participating in surveys both nationally and locally, is that uh, they have a lot of confidence in the science and they're eager both to be vaccinated and to know that the people sitting around them in the theater have been vaccinated. Joanna Felser, let's talk a little about the waves in quarantine uh, by Lisa Peterson. This was inspired by a stage adaptation of Virginia Woolf's The Waves, I guess she worked with Broadway star Raul Esparza on this. How did it come to Berkeley Rep? Well, this is one of those beloved projects that I actually got to bring along with me from New York. In 2017, Lisa Peterson and Raul Esparza called me. Lisa and I have worked together for a number of years at New York Stage and Film on various projects. And they told me the story of this project called The Waves, which started, you know, the theatrical musical adaptation of Virginia Woolf's novel was something that Lisa had worked on with a wonderful composer named David Bucknam back in the very, very early 1990s when they were extremely early career artists. And they had done this together and it had been at a great theater called New York Theater Workshop received to great acclaim. And they had continued to work and then David passed away. And so the piece kind of was shelved as as happens when you have lost one of your dearest friends and collaborators as Lisa had. And years and years later, Raul Esparza, who had actually been a student of David's when David was teaching at NYU, Raul was introduced to this material that he'd heard about for years. And he and Lisa started scheming what would make it possible to re-examine this piece, to sort of reinvestigate what this work was. When Lisa and David had first made it, you know, the novel is in so many ways um, the trajectory of the lives of a group of friends, especially around the loss of one of this very close group. And so the ways in which Lisa and David approached it when they were so young themselves are probably quite different from the way they would approach the material now as um, mature artists and, and people. And so Lisa and Raul started thinking about what would it be like to try and both re-examine and finish this piece, but they couldn't figure out how that could ever be possible without David. And then they came across a wonderful young composer named Adam Guan. Adam, who's a fantastic, highly regarded composer in his own right, with a great list of credits, also had been in the last class of students at NYU that David had taught. So he knew David. David had been a mentor to him. David had been one of the first people to really see and encourage Adam's own composition gifts. So they started thinking about, could Adam join them as a collaborator in this process? And in some ways, write in David's voice the pieces of the music that were unfinished or that needed to be revised now. So in the fall of 2017, we came together, this is at my old company at New York Stage and Film, and we did a a 
a reading of the piece for four days with a group of rather amazing actors in a rehearsal room in Midtown just to hear it and to see if it felt like it was sort of worth the diving back in. And it was an incredibly emotional experience for Elisa, for Raul, for Adam, for David's family who participated in this. But what we walked away from that week thinking is that it was a piece that was well worth the time. So the following summer at New York Stage and Film, we did a, a workshop production of it with Raul playing one of the six friends. We built a, a beautiful company around him, and it was a chance for Lisa and Adam to really dive into the material. Adam wrote some new music for it. Things were reorchestrated. We've been working with an extraordinary orchestrator and music director named Mary Mitchell Campbell. And we did this production and it was one of those things, you know, the text of the novel is very beautiful. It can be a little dense and you kind of don't know what you've got until you're deep in it. And I remember the moment about a week into the run of the play where we all of a sudden turned around and we realized, oh my goodness, audiences were having a rather profound and emotional experience of this material, which was so satisfying to see. And so we did this and we had a great time. And then a year later, I moved to Berkeley to take this job at a theater, of course, where Lisa had long been an artist working on a number of projects here. And so we've been talking about, you know, does the waves have a place at at Berkeley Rep in the long term. And as the pandemic really took hold and all of these various artistic conversations were feeling stuck in amber, you know, you couldn't make plans, you couldn't move forward as painful as it was for us institutionally. I think about how incredibly challenging it was for all of the freelance artists out there who had no idea whether these beloved projects would find a home, would find a home in a timely way. And we started thinking about the ways in which the themes of both the novel and the musical adaptation felt incredibly resonant in this moment. It's a, a piece about friendship. It's about your family that you form when you are young and that you walk through your life with. It's about isolation. It's about longing. And there were so many things that felt so of this specific moment. And we really didn't want to do the kind of Zoom musical adaptation of the theatrical piece. But to Lisa and Raul's credit, they began to think about what were the ways in which they could use the technology available, the sort of delivery systems that we've all come to use in this moment to convey the themes of the novel, this exquisite music, and in some ways to invite an audience into this creative process that they normally don't have any access to. So what the Waves in Quarantine is, well, it's six short films that we made entirely remotely that, that allow an audience a real behind-the-scenes look into what it is for this group of actors who we've brought together for this phase of the project to delve into this material, to dive into the text, to perform this really rather amazing choral music together, and to wrestle with their own existence as artists in this very, very complicated and very specific moment. Uh, I will say making six short films entirely remotely is a task that um, we would only take on in this particular circumstance. So we 
you know, every actor was charged with filming themselves because, of course, we're in a moment that you don't want strangers coming into, you know, can't have a whole camera crew turn up at your doorstep in COVID times. So our wonderful technical staff here at Berkeley Rep put together a kit with a camera and a computer and microphones and um you know, all sorts of stuff that would get delivered to an actor's house. And then we had our director and our music director and our cinematographer who would all gather with this actor by Zoom and explain to them how to set it all up and focus and lead them through this process, which included, you know, the performance of the text, the recording of the music. And then there were moments that we could actually bring the entire cast together remotely in conversation. Lisa is the director and Raul is the associate director. I assume Raul is back in New York. He is, yeah. Every actor filmed themselves independently. So we had one actor in LA, a couple in New York City, one in New Jersey, one in Pennsylvania. Um, It's sort of, I mean, again, it didn't really matter so much where they were for our purposes. So each segment looks at a different aspect of the Virginia Woolf book, or is it kind of meta-commentary about creating the musical? You know, Richard, I think that's exactly right. It is much more meta than just an examination of the book. It is about what it is to make art in this moment, and specifically to explore this musical adaptation of the novel. Which artists are involved in The Waves in Quarantine? Uh, we know Raul Esparza, but there would be five others. Yeah, you know, Raul, who many of your audience members will know from his Broadway credits, as well as from his time on Law and Order, uh, was really one of the instigators, along with Lisa Peterson, of this project. And then we were able to bring together um, kind of amazing Broadway talent like uh, the Tony winner, Alice Ripley, Manu Narayan, Darius DeHaas, Carmen Cusack, and Nikki Renee Daniels. It's a pretty extraordinary group of people who invited us not just sort of into their process, but frankly, into their homes as they created this together. Well, I saw Raul Esparza twice on Broadway in Cabaret, where he played the MC, mm-hmm. And I also saw him in company. Yeah. Yeah, he's a he's a pretty extraordinary talent, and it's been fantastic in this to have him engage with us, not just as an actor, but really as a core member of um, the devising of this project, along with Lisa. Now that you've got Raul Esparza as part of the family, you ever see him coming to do something at Berkeley Rep? I'll simply say that we've had conversations. And how long is the entire piece? Each, well, we call them movements, six movements. Uh, Each one is between 10 and 20 minutes, depending on which one it is. And I would say all told, if you watched all six straight through together, it would be just under 90 minutes. But you can watch them in segments. Oh, of course you can. Absolutely. Is it on YouTube? You can get at it through the Berkeley Rep website. P.S. It's free. So this starts tonight, and there's a opening on Zoom that anybody could attend. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We're going to have a conversation with Lisa and Raul and Adam so they can actually explain to all of you what it was like to make this, how we made it, and in some ways, maybe more importantly, why we made it and why this project is such a a passion project for each one of them. Will that Zoom thing then be on the Berkeley website for people to see afterward? Oh, that's a very good question. I assume it will be. Joanna Felser, 
A couple of other questions about between now and the 2021 season. So you've got the waves in quarantine, and that's playing through May and maybe extended, maybe not. What have you got coming up when we know we're still going to be in this interregnum of life? Yeah, well, we'll have 10 more stories for you for Place Settings Oakland. So 10 individual stories that hopefully will encourage people to get out into the city of Oakland and do a little urban exploration and more than anything to be in the presence of 10 great imaginations and their narrative capabilities. Hopefully by then we're really in pre-production and and heading towards a fall reopening. As of today, as of end of April, when are you thinking in a gen- more general sense, when are you thinking of starting again after Thanksgiving? October. Listen, it could all change. It's dependent on a lot of things coming into alignment from the various health departments and the unions and our own audiences appetite and willingness to to come back into the buildings. But that's our current plan. In terms of coming into the building, now you have the two theaters, but one of them, Pete's, is pretty big. Do you have more ability in that theater, you think, to get the air circulating or is it about the same in both? You know, the beauty of it is that both of those theaters actually have fantastic HVAC capabilities. So one of the things we quickly assessed is whether or not we were in line with the current recommendations, which we absolutely are. So that was really reassuring. The Rhoda is actually our larger stage. Um, I'm not worried about the air circulation in either space. When it reopens, I'm looking at the schedule here. What's curious about the seven shows What I see is that of the seven shows, four of them are musicals. Is that just happenstance or are you focusing more on musicals? You know, what I'm really focused on is storytelling. And I think what we're seeing right now is that a number of artists are looking at all of the different resources that are available to them to convey the stories that they want to tell. And for a lot of people, they're very focused on music. So what I will say is these four musicals, I think, are wildly different from each other. You know, you've got something like Swept Away, which uses the music of the Avett Brothers, this fantastic roots rock band, all the way to Goddess, which is set in a nightclub in Mombasa, Kenya, and in some ways is probably the most traditionally musical musical that we have in the coming season, to Dave Malloy's Octet, which is an a cappella chamber opera, really, for eight voices. And Cambodian Rock Band, which uses the music of this amazing band called Dengue Fever, as performed by the cast. So I think they're each as different from one another as any of the shows in our season are. But they are using music as one of the ways to convey story and emotion and place. And then there's The Ripple, The Wave, Carried Me Home. What's that? Oh, The Ripple, The Wave That Carried Me Home is a beautiful play by a writer named Christina Anderson. It's set in the Midwest in the 1960s, and it tells the story of a family that was deeply committed to the integration of the public swimming pools, an African-American family that were really significant activists in making that change happen in their community. So it takes place then and later when 
their daughter, now an adult, comes back and has to sort of wrestle with her parents' legacy as family, as activists, as community members. And I will say, knowing that California had its own, uh, and the Bay Area had its own change that needed to be manifested in terms of that integration around the pools as well, and that I think, you know, Berkeley in the Bay Area is a place where we are seeing generations of activists. And, you know, for people like me, whose parents were involved in the anti-war movement and the women's movement, there were others around me whose parents were very active in the free speech movement. And to come back to that sense as an adult and to realize the ways in which the members of your family had taken on the responsibility for manifesting change in their community and what the costs were of that work. And then the sanctuary city. Yeah. Sanctuary City is a really exquisite play by Martina Mayok. Um, it's a play about two teenagers who grow up together in an unnamed city. Both are undocumented. And it poses the question in all of Martina's gorgeous, poetic way of what it is to be denied the right to truly feel at home in the place that you call home. What happens to these two young people when one of them is swept in under their parents' documentation and the other one isn't, and where their paths, therefore, are forced to diverge? And the final play, which somehow I didn't write down from your website, what's that? Oh, that's Chuck Mee's delightful play, Wintertime, directed by his longtime collaborator, Les Waters, who, as you know, used to be the Associate Artistic Director here at Berkeley Rep. And that is a delightful romp of a play. Um, it's set at, in a cabin in the woods where a young man turns up on a holiday weekend with his intended in tow, preparing to... Uh, proposed to her, opens the door and finds his mother there. And not just his mother, but his mother who's there with her lover. They hear a car in the driveway who should pull up, but his father with his lover. So it's kind of, um, you know, like all of Chuck Mee's plays, they sort of explode out of the frame. They are the most uh, joyful, life-bound, absurdist examinations of what it is to be human and passionately in love. So I think that'll be a real treat for our audience. In terms of when these plays show up, do you know which theater they're going to be in? Or is that more dependent upon when you can start and how you could work around the various performers. Yeah, no, I do know which theater they'll each be in, in part because they were chosen for specific places. You know, the theaters, in our mind, at least aren't totally interchangeable. So some really want that kind of volume of space that the Rota gives, and some are so well served by the intimacy of the Peets. So right now, the Ripple, the Wave that Carried Me Home, Swept Away, Octet, and Sanctuary City are in the Peets, and Wintertime, Goddess and Cambodian rock band are in the Rhoda. Joanna Felser, recently I spoke with film critic David Thompson about movie theaters opening up. He made an interesting comment. He thinks movie theaters won't open up, but that live theater may do much better than it has in the past because people will want to be with other people. Do you think that's true? You know, honestly, Richard, I'm counting on it being true. I know how much I long for that experience of sharing 
sharing a story with people. You know, to me, theater is transformative in the ways in which it takes a group of strangers and creates community through this sense of shared experience of narrative. So, you know, I've sat now in parked cars next to strangers watching plays. I've sat, you know, outdoors in parking lots in socially distanced ways with strangers watching plays. And at every turn, I am so aware of what I am longing for, which for me, and I think for many people, is that sense of being in a shared environment, knowing that we're hearing the same words, that we are swept along in the same emotions, that we're being given the same opportunity to imagine a world that is not our own, and that for that brief moment, we are plunged into and that we get to share, and that as the lights come back up, we are no longer strangers to each other. His point also was that we've gotten so used to watching film at home on not really television sets, but giant screens, that at this point, the idea of being in a place where the actors and the audience are as one, and they're all interacting with each other, is an entirely different experience. Whereas going to see a movie, you're still by yourself eating popcorn. Yeah, I mean, it's a difference of scale. And I have to say, when I was watching the Oscars and looking at those previews for In the Heights or West Side Story, I was longing for the moment that I could see them on a screen, you know, significantly bigger than my computer. But I do think, as you say, that shared experience of being in the same room with the artists who are creating this story for you, you can't replicate in any other way. For that, we need live theater and we need to experience it together. Joanna Felser, have you started thinking about the season afterward when hopefully we are really past this? I have. Of course I have. You know, one of the greatest joys is to begin to plan for the after this. I would say that thinking is in relatively early stages right now, but, you know, there's a lot of post-its stuck to the wall of my home office at the moment, and hopefully over time those will coalesce into the, the season still to come. You've been listening to an interview with Joanna Felzer, who is the artistic director of Berkeley Rep. The Waves in Quarantine is now available on the Berkeley Rep website, berkeleyrep.org, as is Place Settings Berkeley. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next time on the Bay Area Theater Podcast. (laughs) 